And now, two pigeons bemoaning the fact you can stream DirecTV satellite-free. Hey, Frank, a little birdie told me you don't need a satellite dish to get DirecTV. What's little birdie? Was it Jimmy the Sparrow? It's a figure of speech. Point is, you can stream DirecTV over the internet now. Oh, sure. Next you're gonna tell me those big birds are made of metal and filled with people, right? <laughs> you mean airplanes? Stream DirecTV without a satellite dish. Visit DirecTV.com. High-speed internet service required. Terms and restrictions apply. Welcome to the Total Soccer Show. My name is Taylor Rockwell, and here with me today to talk Major League Soccer is a man who spends his downtime pondering the major questions of life, like why are we here, what's the sound of one hand clapping, and why exactly is the identity of the LA Galaxy yet to be determined? It's Joe Lowry. Uh, Joe, as I understand it, you have clear answers for those first two questions. The final one might take up a little bit more time. Yeah, that's exactly right. The, the first two are very straightforward life and, and one-handed yep. clapping. Though, I mean, we already all know the answers to those. Of course. The galaxy is yeah. a little bit of a different question. Taylor, I see you've been doing some reading recently. <laughs> maybe, maybe. Maybe maybe checking out Backheeled, as many people should, because uh, Joe's got some really great pieces on there, so to do many other writers. But yeah, it's been a nice uh, like insight into Joe away from the show about the things that Joe is <laughs> interested in and covering. And, and also, you're just a, a very good writer. You write... Like, clear, concise, but also creatively. And I very much enjoy your work, my friend. Oh, thank you, Taylor. Yeah, yeah the dude. insight into what things I write about and enjoy is just American soccer, which is the Pretty scope much. of the site. So <laughs> if, that's, much. if that's your cup of tea, then I think Backhill might be the spot for you. <laughs> there you go. Uh, well, we are going to talk Major League Soccer on today's episode. First, we should do some housekeeping, some catching up yeah. of sorts. We've had plenty of people talk about the CONCACAF U-20 tournament that is currently underway. We have not talked about it very much, uh, somewhat because we've been busy, somewhat because uh, various <laughs> hosts have been on vacation and on the road, but also because... It's a confusing tournament in yeah. which I think when I first floated this idea to you, Joe, about should we talk about this tournament, I think your response was, we definitely can. I mean, they just won 10-0, <laughs> so I don't know how much we can take away from that one. Well, sure, and it's, it's weird because that that take from me didn't actually age all that well because the USU-20s opened up the CONCACAF U-20 championship with a 10-0 win over St. Kitts, and then they go in and draw Canada 2-2 in the second group stage mm-hmm. game, which was last night. They have Cuba in the third game of the group stage. This is... Parts of this tournament are interesting. I'll start with the parts that are kind of weird and not so interesting. So first of all, this is far from a first-choice U-20 group, for the U.S. at least, which is kind of exactly what you want. Ricardo Pepe, not involved. A lot of other top young U.S. players aren't involved. There's still plenty of talent. Diego Luna, who just made a move from El Paso to RSL, from USL to MLS, is involved. Uh, Cade Cowell, Caden Clark, lots of really talented players are in this team. But it's not quite a first-choice squad. So that's that's one kind of bummer about this tournament. But there are a couple of really fascinating parts about this, too. So the main purpose, or at least in the past, of the CONCACAF U-20 championship has been to qualify teams for the U-20 World Cup. It makes sense. CONCACAF to World Cup, that's the usual transition. And that will be happening in this tournament. The final four teams that are left standing in this tournament will go to the 2023 U-20 World Cup in Indonesia but that's not the only or even the biggest tournament that the U.S. can qualify for by winning this or at least advancing far enough in this U-20 championship. The final two teams, so the winner of the two semifinals, will go to the 2024 Olympics. So this could be the U.S.'s chance, Taylor Rockwell, to sort of exercise some of those 
Olympic qualifying demons that we've seen over and over again and actually get to the Olympics. It's kind of anticlimactic in that way. It's likely not a lot of the same players that would be on an Olympics roster should the U.S. make it there after after winning this or getting far enough in this tournament. But still, there is a reason for people to be paying attention to this team and to this tournament. But the competition level is something I'm still not entirely sure about. Yeah, and I think what we can promise is that if the United States does not advance, which seems almost impossible at this point, we will definitely talk about what went wrong. But then we will probably talk about this tournament uh, more as we get to those later rounds, because though we have a ton of teams participating, there is already some drama. As you said, the U.S. drew against Canada. That puts them into a sort of if they want to top the group, they've got to beat Haiti, no, Cuba, in their final game. Uh, But even if they don't, the top three teams in each group advance to the (laughs) knockout round, and there are four teams in each group so we would assume the U.S. will make the knockout round and then I think once they start meeting some sterner opposition maybe that's where we have some more conversations about them but ultimately Joe as you said this isn't the first choice team the eye is qualifying for the Olympics so I think we can sort of if nothing else do a look back maybe as the tournament concludes about who stood out who had the best uh, competition overall who we should be keeping an eye on going forward uh, both for the United States and for a couple other CONCACAF countries because I do think ultimately the expanded competition is meant to give uh, the teams of CONCACAF more opportunities to play competitive games at various age levels and so I think it's doing the job it's meant to do uh, but maybe not one that's going to be front and center on our plate overall though it is today so I think that's worth mentioning Uh, but yeah we, we will be back hopefully after uh, Cuba is dispatched by the United States and the U.S. tops the group that advances. But either way, some knockout round coverage for sure. Other games we will definitely be covering, Joe, would be the final two friendlies for the U.S. men's national team ahead of the World Cup. We now know their opponents, and they are definitely opponents. They, they are, and, and there's some quality here. So it's Japan and Saudi Arabia. That'll be on September 23rd and September 27th respectively, both teams that are going to be at the World Cup. And Japan is a pretty highly ranked team in in the FIFA rankings. They're in the top 25 of the FIFA rankings and the top 30 or 35 of the ELO ratings. So they're a decent opposition, sort of on par with Morocco, who the U.S. played in that June window, of course. Saudi Arabia is not ranked as highly. These are, I think, just about some of the best teams that the U.S. could end up playing in this September window, and, and here's why. So UEFA, every pretty much every team in UEFA has Nations League games going on in that September international window, which is the last window before the World Cup, the last FIFA window before the World Cup. So UEFA teams not available for friendlies. CAF, so that's Africa, has AFCON qualifying. So African teams not available for friendlies. The one confederation that I don't know about, Taylor, and we talked a bit about this before, and I asked around about this and, and didn't really get much of an answer. So listeners, if you know, please tweet at us, tweet at me, and let me know and fill me in here. I'm a little curious as to why the U.S. isn't trying to play at least one South American team. I know I know it's easier said than done to just dream up friendlies. I know there's a lot of logistical challenges here. But I am curious as to why maybe the U.S., didn't try to go out and, and really get even a even a, a South American team that's not going to the World Cup like Colombia or Chile or now Peru or if you really want to swing for the fences and go for Brazil or Argentina there's quality there more quality certainly in Conmebol than there is in in Asia so I don't know exactly what's happening there I welcome someone to fill me in but either way we have the friendly opponents we have uh, the two teams that the U.S. is playing Japan in particular I think will be a good test for this team. And that'll be the last window before the World Cup, Taylor, our last chance to learn a little bit more about the U.S. before the World Cup. Yeah, and so maybe there are some competitions that limit South America's ability to uh, play friendlies. I also think Brazil and Argentina are always kind of in demand, so maybe they're just harder to book ahead of time. And (laughs) then I think also the U.S. has 
They played Uruguay recently. I think they often play Ecuador, so maybe there's just a, a desire to play some other opponents who are World Cup opponents at that. Uh, I, I also try to look at these games as, like, what are they preparing us for? And, I, I, Joe, I know you've done a, a little bit more of a look ahead to the U.S.'s opponents. So let's remove England for a second. Do either Japan or Saudi Arabia have relevance, you think, when it comes to playing Iran or Wales? I, I don't know, Taylor. That's a really good question and something we should look at more. I haven't been able to watch a ton of Japan or Saudi Arabia. I, I read through just a really quick scouting report. I almost hesitate to use that on Japan, and it sort of labeled them as being willing to sit deep and attack on the break, and that may yeah. be true. It felt it, it was certainly short and truncated analysis, so I don't even really know if that's accurate on Japan. I need to watch more. Iran and, and Wales will both sit and, and attack. Iran will probably open up the game more than Wales. They have a lot of really quality attacking talent, not game-breaking talent necessarily, but they have good players, Iran. So does Wales. But I don't know how analogous these two teams will be to the U.S.'s group stage teams, but, but maybe there's something there. Maybe there is something there to that sort of cliche of let's play teams from the same confederation and that'll prepare us. I'm always hesitant to buy into that logic, but maybe, and I'm sure Greg Berhalter's done more prep on these teams than, than we have, maybe there is some sort of tie-in there that'll be useful. I actually am inclined to think there is because... At first, I was going to say it sounds like Japan, like like a similar style to Wales or what we expect of Wales, Saudi, a similar style or what we expect to Iran. But maybe it is the case that these are going to be these are two teams that much like Wales and Iran, we would expect to, to sit deep to play on the break. Maybe they open up a little bit more, uh, as you mentioned, like one of them might. But if it is sort of preparing for better quality opposition who ultimately play defensive and try to frustrate that's what the united states has struggled against in qualifying and outside of qualifying is breaking down those more defensive opponents and we've talked previously about how against more open teams even with better quality the u.s seems more comfortable so maybe this is being done with an eye towards breaking down some defensive opponents who are of world cup quality and in that way i'm actually more excited than i was when we started this conversation so thanks for that joe yeah, you got it. Hopefully this is a useful exercise. Yeah. I, I think it will be. It's not that these are bad teams. I I just sort of have that last lingering question about could they have played someone better? And it, it seems like, given the lack of outrage, where you usually expect to see outrage on Twitter, <laughs> that, that they probably couldn't. And maybe I'm just missing something here. But either way, Japan and Saudi oh, Arabia on, on September 9th, uh, 23rd, excuse me, and September 27th, last games to the U.S. before the World Cup. I will forever remember, I believe it was Greg Berhalter, getting questions about like a roster in which he didn't call in European players because it wasn't a European window and still ah, got a bunch yes. of questions about, like, does this mean that you have favoritism towards Major League Soccer? So I think those uh, frustrations will be evident, Joe. I think we're just not uh, within the, the range of them being on the radar quite gotcha. yet. But eventually gotcha. there will be some concern <laughs> about why we're playing these two opponents. For now, we don't need to worry about that because there's other soccer to be discussed. Uh, as I said in the intro, we're going to spend a lot of time on this episode talking about Major League Soccer. Uh, if you are already a fan of MLS, this episode will be for you. If you are not, uh, and it's not an aggressive I hate that league sort of feeling, which you shouldn't have anyway, but if you're interested, if you're sort of casually into the idea of getting into Major League Soccer, and I think listeners should be, I would encourage you to listen to this one. Because ultimately, MLS is fun. And I think we oftentimes get caught up in discussing the terminology and salary budgets and the confusion of managers coming in and coaches getting sacked and new players. And I think we don't 
always take the broader picture, the bigger picture, to look at just the fact that this league has gotten so much better. The spending power is so much stronger. The quality is there. There's exciting coaches doing exciting things. There's young players coming through with even younger players behind them. And I feel like I'm saying this within the context of the conversation we had yesterday about Manchester United and Richard Arnold basically telling fans the Glazers aren't going to sell the club. They they didn't like hesitate to buy the club when you all hated them in the beginning. They're not going to do anything now. So the implication in my mind was like, you may as well get on board. And that just really stuck out to me as being a reminder of how little influence fans have, supporters have when it comes to those major clubs around the world. And I think with Major League Soccer, because it is a smaller league, but also it's a league that is still desperately trying to grow, I think there is so much more involvement fans can have and community that can be built around these teams and just stories that can be followed and interesting narratives to keep an eye on. And so more than ever, I'm really happy to be talking MLS because we don't have a like a major tournament the way we normally would with the World Cup or the Euros right in the middle of the summer. And so we have an opportunity now to, to take some of this downtime and, and focus in on MLS. And I would encourage listeners to do the same. Joe, for you, I know you're, you, you have long been a fan of Major League Soccer and we could talk the big picture stuff. But I'd like to know what are like the peculiarities or the unique aspects of the league that you find most enjoyable when you're covering it, when you're writing about it? You kind of got to it there, Taylor. So for me, a big part of this is some of the diversity within the league in styles and in different names and, and players from so many different areas and, and stages of their careers. I enjoy that part. I enjoy the different tactical diversity that you see across the league. But but really for me, it's almost the imperfection of MLS or, or yeah. really a better way to phrase yeah. it is the chance that it has and, and how it is currently growing. So I started really paying attention to MLS maybe five years ago. And I started and knew some about the league before then, but but really diving into it in an attempt to cover the league maybe five years ago. And the league has changed and evolved and improved already since then. So that's not a huge surprise, even if you had a half an eye in MLS that it's improved in that way. But, but it really has changed. There have been teams, new teams, teams that have struggled, teams that have changed, and, and different mechanisms within MLS that have changed. It's also, MLS is, is still trying to find its place in North American soccer, in the North American soccer landscape, and in the global soccer landscape. But it's it's finding its place, both relative to Liga Mekis, which is the giant in this region, and relative to other countries in the transfer market. So you add in a league that's trying to grow and find itself and is flawed, right? There are so many frustrating things about Major League Soccer and, and frustrating parts about this league. The complicated rock, roster mechanisms, which you already mentioned, Taylor, are enough to make literally anyone's head spin, including people that work in MLS and are supposed to understand the rules as their job. It is way too complicated in certain ways to follow MLS, but there aren't many other sports entities in the world, I think. And I, I think about this a lot. There aren't very many sports entities in the world that have the potential to grow quite like MLS does. There certainly aren't that many soccer leagues in the world that have the potential to grow percentage-wise as much as MLS does. I don't know that this this league will ever catch the Premier League or La Liga or the Bundesliga or Serie A I, or, or even Liga Mekis anytime soon. But it's fun to watch and fun to watch it grow and change and improve. I mean, just today, Taylor... There was a $10 million fee, reportedly, paid out for Cucho Hernandez, a player, a Colombian international, coming over from Watford. The Columbus Crew splashed, a, a, I believe, according to Tom Bogart, the seventh highest transfer fee in MLS history. Teams are spending money. The league is growing. It's improving. The Sounders just win the CONCACAF Champions League. This stuff gets me excited, and I don't know if it gets other people excited, but I think it's a really fun part. The growth of this league is a really fun part 
of watching MLS and, and sort of getting invested now, not on the ground floor, because I think people who have followed this league and have enjoyed it for a lot longer than I am would quibble with me using that term, but really to get in early in the grand scheme of things before Major League Soccer becomes something much more than it is right yeah. now. I know what you mean, because I think about that when there, where there's all those like reporters who were covering soccer in, in the early mid-90s before the league even existed. And I think about them getting in sort of so early and being so influential as a result. And that's the case with so many other sports. You had people covering them from the outset. And as they kind of caught fire and got bigger, that like those voices grew with them and those outlets grew. And, and it just it kind of reshapes the sports landscape. Uh, I promise this segment and this episode is not being paid for by MLS, but I do <laughs> ultimately think in our lifetime, it will become, if not the first, then the second biggest sport in the United States. Biggest league, that is. I think the NFL is always going to be very difficult to catch, even as some of the health concerns continue to be discussed and reported upon and then occasionally ignored by certain teams. Uh, I, I think just the way the league is growing, the money that's being spent, the names that are coming, both in terms of the big names that are always, like the Beckham-esque names, but then also the younger South American talent that is genuinely starting to see uh, Major League Soccer as a springboard to to those moves abroad. And I think it's becoming a league that... If not a selling club, it's sort of a like middleman league of 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 you can sort of have players come in and have long careers that are very successful, but they can also play a season or two and then jump to an, an even bigger league in Europe. I think there's a ton of uh, reason to be excited because of the quality that's therefore being brought in. But it's also just it's hard to go see European games. You've got to figure out how to get tickets and pay for the transport and get over there. And if you've got a family of four, that is no cheap thing to do whereas you can attend these games and you can get into the the first teams even the the lower league or like lower tier sides uh, i talk about this a lot but when the richmond kickers were in the league with some of the usl uh with the mls2 teams like i saw tyler adams play against the richmond kickers matt turner was in goal for the kickers i think that season uh we saw jesus ferreira score a hat trick i think against the richmond kickers like you get an opportunity to see all this young talent coming through and it's just always really exciting so i think Sometimes I let MLS slip off my radar a bit, and so spending the last day or so just reading about the teams, catching up on things, reading a bunch of backheeled has got me more excited than ever to talk Major League Soccer. I'm glad to hear it, Taylor. I really do love and enjoy watching Major League Soccer. It is flawed. It is very flawed. And I think the people that spend the most time watching and thinking about MLS will be the first people to tell you that, or probably the first people after the pro-rail people to tell you that, but still top two groups of people to tell you. But I think it's a blast, and I would encourage people, and I hope people spend a little time over the next few months before the European season kicks back off again and before the World Cup watching MLS and maybe enjoying their local team or the closest team they have to their local team and just getting invested in this league because I think it's going to change and continue to grow, especially with the new TV deal, which we've talked about, Paul and Sam talked about. That, I think, is going to provide a lot of new avenues and, and new ways for people to be a fan of MLS and in just ways that haven't existed before. So I'm, I'm excited about this league. I enjoy it and I'm, I'm happy to talk about it. And to be fair, everything is flawed. And if, and if a thing tells you it isn't flawed, it is lying. <laughs> so on that note, we're going to take one quick break and then we will be back to talk about some of the individual teams in the league that we are both praising. Looking for an assist with your credit card, but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. 
You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. This episode is brought to you by Michelob Ultra, the official beer sponsor of the NBA. Want to get closer to the game than ever before? Michelob Ultra Courtside is giving fans the chance to win exclusive NBA prizes and experiences like official gear, courtside seats to an NBA game, and more. Head over to MichelobUltra.com slash courtside to learn more. Welcome back. All right, Joe, let's pick up with a name you mentioned there, Cucho Hernandez, uh, signed by the crew uh, from Watford, $10 million, as you said, one of the most expensive DPs ever. What do you make of that signing, and how much do the crew need him to start scoring sooner rather than later? Uh, I'll answer the second question first. They need him to start scoring sooner rather than later yesterday. That's okay. what the crew need right now. So they need attacking production. And with that in mind, I do like this signing. So it was mm-hmm. Mauro Minotas, former Houston Dynamo striker, who was, who was pretty darn good in MLS. He was the other player that that apparently the crew were interested in, according to reports. And and I think that would have been a good signing. Cucho Hernandez is just a way more exciting signing because he's unknown. And he has that appeal because we haven't seen a lot of him before. There's, there's plenty of film out on Cucho Hernandez, but he is someone that's never been in MLS before. He has a more exciting profile than a lot of other players who come into MLS. He's 23 years old. He's a, a five foot eight Colombian international. He's just starting to get in with with the Colombian international with the Colombian national team. Excuse me, coming over from Watford, where he didn't play a ton last year. He played uh, over a thousand minutes for them in the Premier League and in the FA Cup. He mostly played as a winger. He's played some in England and in Spain before. One of, the, one of the most interesting parts to me about this transfer, besides the money, which I think is an impressive statement from the Columbus Crew ownership group and, and just a continued sign of MLS's willingness to spend, which I think is great. One of the more intriguing parts about this deal to me is his position. So he, he's in all these promo videos for the crew holding up the number nine shirt and it has his name on the back. So he will be wearing the number nine for Columbus. He didn't play much number nine in the Premier League last year. He mostly played out wide and same in his most recent appearance for Colombia against, I believe, Saudi Arabia. He's played on the wing. After watching a bunch of footage, which is exactly what I did this morning, I think, Taylor, he is primed. Cucho Hernandez is primed for a Joseph Martinez-style positional switch. So let's rewind like five years now to 2017. Joseph Martinez is playing as a winger for Torino in Serie A, and he comes into Atlanta on loan, and he's put up top by Tato Martino, and he thrives there. I don't need any. I don't need to tell anybody that Joseph Martinez is a good striker. It seems like Cucho Hernandez is ready to do that same thing. I don't think for a second that he will be as good or as prolific in MLS as Joseph Martinez has been. But positionally, with his profile, he's energetic, he's determined, he's forceful, he wins balls in the air despite being so small. I think that screams Joseph Martinez, and I think he's ready for more minutes in the middle, which is one of the areas that the Columbus crew sorely needed to fill, and I think they checked that box so far. Uh, Joe, also credit to you for not getting confused between Colombia and Columbus, which is a thing <laughs> that I'm probably going to do pretty often. But uh, Cucho Hernandez, though we watched a ton of Premier League, I am not as familiar with, but I was heartened by seeing a number of different analysts talking about how there were teams in the Premier League or certainly in the in the championship who could have used his services. So to get a player who is 23 years old, who is, as you said, breaking through for Colombia at the right time, it does seem like a bit of a coup for Columbus, a team that I, I, I won 
once used as, as an example of how it was difficult to get DPs into the league because people wanted to play in New York and L.A. and Miami, sure. less so teams like Columbus and Cincinnati. Columbus and Cincinnati fans did not love that one. But I think the point used to still stand and maybe less so now. It's another example of the spending power of Major League Soccer. Yeah, I mean, your your initial point still stands. Like, players want to play in New York, in L.A., yeah. and in Miami. Like, that's there's a reason why we yeah. don't see Leo Messi linked to the Columbus crew, because that's never going to happen. <laughs> but we are seeing teams like Columbus and Cincinnati, those are both great examples, splash the cash. Cincinnati signed Brenner for a huge chunk of change in the last couple of seasons, and he's not been good for Cincinnati and probably won't be around for a ton longer. But the, the state of intent there is real. The state of intent with Columbus to sign Lucas Elarion from Liga MX and to now assign Cucho Hernandez from the Premier League is real. They're spending money, and I don't know if Hernandez is going to hit. I think he'll. I think he'll be a good to you know pretty darn good MLS player. I don't know that he'll be a real star in this league. I could be totally off on that, and I'd be happy to eat my words. But getting very good players involved and paying real money for them is a statement of intent from MLS, is a statement of intent from the Columbus crew. And there's no doubt in my mind that this signing makes Columbus better. And sitting in 11th in the East right now, they need players who are going to make them better. Joe, since you mentioned them, let's talk Cincinnati for a second. We get to talk about them in a positive way, which is sort of rare when it comes to FC Cincinnati. (laughs) Yeah, it's not something that literally anyone, including Cincinnati fans, are used to. But they're kind of good now under Pat Noonan as the manager and Chris Albright as uh, a GM or technical director. I honestly can't remember. He's in the front office, both former Philadelphia Union front office slash coaching members. Cincinnati right now are eighth in the in the East. They're just outside, just below the playoff line. But I think they are one of the better teams in the Eastern Conference. They, they have now a defined way of playing under Pat Noonan. They are more direct. They are more vertical, which is exactly what you would expect from a coach who used to be a part of Jim Curtin's staff in the Union under Ernst Tanner. It makes sense. And they have actual quality attacking players, and they're letting those players shine. And those two biggest players are Brandon Vasquez and Lucho Acosta. Lucho Acosta has been maybe the best number 10 in all of MLS this year. He's creating chances. He's moving. He's conducting the attack. He's doing everything you want from him in the attack. And Brendan Vasquez has been one of the best players straight up in all of Major League Soccer this season. He is one of a few American number nines that are really producing this year, and he's been huge. He was close, it sounds like, to getting a call up in June for the U.S., If he keeps scoring, and he did score against the Union this past weekend, if he keeps scoring goals and keeps playing well, I would be very surprised, Taylor, if Brandon Vasquez isn't on the U.S.'s radar in September if he's not involved in that squad against Japan and Saudi Arabia. He, along with Jesus Ferreira and and Jeremy Abobasi really as the third player there, are some of the best producing attacking players and, and best strikers in all of MLS this year, which is not something we've been able to say about an FC Cincinnati player or really about many American number nines in quite some time now. Oh, man, I was just looking at my old notes for FC Cincinnati, and my specific prediction for this season was that Brandon Vasquez would double his goals and assists from last season. He had four goals and three assists last year. I don't know his assist numbers, but it sounds like I've got the uh, the goal-scoring oh, yeah. prediction oh, yeah. correct. At the time we did those previews, Joe, I was fairly concerned because uh, my sort of roster breakdown had them as only having four to five actual midfielders and then four wingers and six center forwards that felt like a very attacking team uh, would you say they've would you say they've kind of found a balance then under Pat Noonan I think they have they're not flawless with that balance defensively I still think there are some issues there and the, and the attack isn't perfect either don't get me wrong they're eighth in the Eastern Conference but they have made a, a couple of signings they signed uh, no 
shoot, I butchered it. Obina, no, what, shoot. Okay, they signed a player from Turkey. I had I had the pronunciation down. <laughs> I lost it. Who covers a lot of ground. That was so brutal. I was really confident, and it all just crumbled oh, now, so I don't even quick. know his name, but now I'm going to look it up and try you to You can do you. it, Taylor. You can do it. He started against the Union against uh, against the Union this past weekend. They signed a midfielder to cover some ground in that space. They lost Matarita uh, when he was on international duty with Costa Rica, which is a real bummer for this group because he is so fun to watch. But losing Maturita does help you improve your defensive stability a little bit. So there is some improvement there. Either way, it's a flawed Cincinnati team, but a vastly improved Cincinnati team that is actually now fun to watch. And I think they're actually good in the Eastern Conference, too. Sticking in the Eastern Conference, Joe, who else do you find actually fun to watch this time around? The biggest one for me, and this is a real low-hanging fruit situation, Ryan Bailey would be proud of me, it's NYCFC, just because they have so much talent, Taylor. Tyus Magno is now really settling into this team. A Brazilian player that, that NYCFC paid a bunch of money for last season has now had a full preseason to ramp up, and he's really involved on the left side of NYCFC's attack. They have other talented, young attacking players in, in Pereira and in Thiago Andrade and in Santi Rodriguez, and they have Maxi Morales, who's been around for a long time now in New York City, and Tati Castellanos up top, who's been probably the best number nine ahead of that American contingent this season in MLS. He's scoring goals. He's been effective for them. The, the, the other intriguing part about NYCFC right now, besides just how darn good they are at the top of the East, is what happens next for this team in in the next few months, or really in the next months. So Ronnie Dyla is already gone, and we talked about that on TSS last week or, or the week before, I believe. He's now coaching Standard Liège in Belgium, and he'll be in charge of them for this next season. And Tati Castellanos is almost certainly going to leave this summer, too, assuming NYCFC can find someone to pay the, the fee, that the, the valuation, to meet that valuation. It seems like Castellanos will be gone. I thought he was going to be gone last winter, so before this MLS season started. But it feels like this is the time for Tati to go. With Dyla gone and Castellanos eventually gone, what does this team look like? Who's playing up top? I don't think we'll see any major tactical changes, but the personnel will have to shift. And, and Nick Cushing will have some, some tough decisions to make in regards to who plays do, does NYCFC try to sign someone else? Do they try to, to bring in another number nine? Do they have someone on the squad already just shift up to that spot? I don't know what that looks like, but those questions for me actually make NYCFC even more fun as the season goes on, and they're already extremely entertaining to watch on the field. We had a conversation yesterday about like uh, transfers that have happened, transfers that might happen. One team we talked about, or Graham specifically was confused by their activity, was West Ham, and that they hadn't gone out and tried to sign another striker, another yeah. like, attacking reinforcement, a potential deputy to Mikel Antonio. And then I saw today that uh, Tati Castellanos heavily linked with a move to West Ham. Joe, does that tick a lot of boxes? Because to me, a person who doesn't know that much about uh, Tati Castellanos or West Ham, it does still feel like it works pretty well. I think it works well. I, I, I just think Castellanos is good enough to play regular minutes for a top-half Premier League team, for a team even competing in Europe in the Premier League or in another major European league. He's that good. He's good in the air. He's really skillful with the ball at his feet. His hold-up play is good. His movement in the box is good. He's a little. Uh, he lacks a little discipline with some of his shot selection at times, but he'll press, he'll run, he'll do the dirty work for you defensively and in transition. He is everything you could want from a number nine. I think he is along with Alfonso Davies and Tyler Adams and, and Miguel Almiron, maybe even better than Miguel Almiron in terms of his his ceiling and his ability to impact a team. I think Castellanos is in that elite tier of past MLS exports or or really, in Castellanos' case, a future MLS export. He is a really good player, and I think he could do damage for West Ham. 
Uh, sticking with a sort of uh, England comparison to NYCFC, uh, like teams with the nickname Rovers and Wanderers, I believe I'm correct in saying that they got those names because they initially started off not having a home ground. So they had to travel around, they had to rove, they had to wander. Uh, I feel like NYCFC could maybe adopt that title this year. I saw that they've played six uh, like home games at six different facilities. There has been some talk that maybe there will be a ground decided upon that there will be some movement there. Uh, we're going to leave that one aside because that's for people smarter with better understandings <laughs> of New York real estate than I have. Uh, my question or final question for you about New York, Joe, basically is what are your expectations for them under Nick Cushing? Do you think there's a chance that he gets the job permanent or do you think he is the interim manager until they find somebody else who's of the profile that City Football uh, Group would be looking for. What do you think happens there uh, to the extent that you can guess? I do think there's a chance that Nick Cushing gets the job. So he's been an assistant coach before for NYCFC, and before that, he was in charge of Manchester City's women's team. So he is full-on City Football Group guy. So he has experience in this realm I don't I don't think he's a shoe-in for this job by any stretch of the imagination. I think if the team performs well and he gets them to a trophy – there's a, a decent chance that he comes back. Even then, I think he's an uphill battle. But still, there is an opportunity for Nick Cushing to keep this job. Otherwise, it seems like NYCFC now, with the other managers they've had, Taylor, I mean, think about Patrick Vieira, who left the job to go coach Nice in Liga and now is coaching Crystal Palace in the Premier League. Dome Torrent has, has moved to a big job after being in charge of NYCFC. And now Ronnie Dyla going to Belgium, which I don't think is exactly an upgrade, but Standard Liège is a club that has experience competing in major European competitions that are above MLS's level. There's no doubt about that. So this is a, a coveted job, and I think there's a chance that NYCFC has more sway than maybe any other team in MLS and is a more attractive destination in so many different ways than a lot of other MLS teams. You couple the attractiveness of the job with City Football Group's resources, and I, I think Cushing is fighting an uphill battle to to keep that job relative to maybe a, a higher-profile candidate who's looking for that kind of exposure. So we've got NYCFC top of the East. We've got the Red Bulls just underneath them, though they've played two more games than NYCFC. Still don't really know. Do you call them the Citizens? What do you call NYCFC if you don't want to just keep repeating that acronym over and over, Joe? I repeat it until my head's banged through the wall. It's, it's, NYCFC yeah. or New York City citizens, I, I can't do. I just can't. I can't. I can't do it. <laughs> okay. Well, I, I have similar questions about is it Red Bull New York or New York Red Bulls? But either way, Joe, what have you made of that team this year? It's the New York Red Bulls simply because it doesn't seem like Red Bull cares at all about the New York Red Bulls cool. enough to cool. like actually rebrand them to Red Bull New York like all the rest of the Red Bull teams. <laughs> um, credit to to the Red Bulls for having a strong season so far. They are also, I think, one of the better teams in the league and in, in their place in the Eastern Conference standing second behind NYCFC, as you say, reflects that. Gerard Struber's done a lot with, I don't want to say little relative to a lot of MLS teams, but they don't spend a ton on salaries. They don't have a ton of really high-profile players but I do think they've hit on some of the signings recently. Luquinas uh, being maybe chief among them, coming in, a Brazilian player. We talked about him. I think I had the Red Bulls in the preseason previews. And I mentioned that he could be an attacking, creative presence for the Red Bulls, and he has been that. He hasn't been outstanding, but he's been good. You also have Lewis Morgan, who came over from Inter-Miami. Scottish uh, player, so Graham's going to be happy there. He's He's been good, playing a number of different roles for the Red Bulls. They know exactly who they are. They're getting contributions from homegrowns like John Tolkien. They're getting contributions from Frankie Amaya, who they got from Cincinnati. They're getting a lot of different players involved in, in helping this team produce. Now that it seems like they're starting to win some games at home and get some results at home at the very least, I think that bodes well for the Red Bulls over this almost the second half of the season. 
one other Eastern Conference team, and then I want to take a break. But I wanted to ask you about Philly, the Philadelphia Union. You mentioned a little bit about them when discussing the connections to Jim Curtin, uh, president of FC Cincinnati. This season, FC, uh, excuse me, Philadelphia Union, more draws than any other team in the league. Do you have an idea as to why that's happening, Joe? Is that their style of play? Is it specifically how they're attacking? Have they become too predictable? Or is it something else entirely? Uh, yes to a lot of that. So style yeah, right. of play, they're predictable, and they they lack something. In the attack, they lack a, a real creator, a line breaker. And that's not exactly how they want to play. So so stylistically, Jim Curtin is is a Red Bull coach at this point. Like He's, he's made that full transition into the long ball, win the ball, play directs, and, and just kind of right down your throat kind of soccer. He is all about that now, and this this Union team has done very well with that model. They're third in the East right now, so things are generally going well for the Union, but they've drawn a bunch of games. Taylor, you said it. They are missing, and, and Jim Curtin said it, I guess I should say. They're, they're missing a piece. Curtin specifically called that out after their 1-1 draw against Cincinnati at home over the weekend. Daniel Gazdag is their number 10. He's a Hungarian international. He's a, he's a fine player with some good underlying numbers this year, but he is a little bit more of a box-arriving number 10, like a box-arriving central midfielder, than he is a string-pulling central midfielder. He's not this guy who's going to break you down. He's not Luquinas. He's not uh, Lucho Acosta. He's not Lucas Elorayan. He doesn't do that stuff. And that's not really his job, and that's not his profile either. The union, I think, needs someone who can elevate their attacking play. The nines are not getting a ton of service, and that that hurts because they, they spent a couple of DP spots on nines in the offseason. But they need more from that number 10 spot, or they need more from central midfield somewhere in, in terms of attacking production and creativity. Paxton Aronson could be that guy. He hasn't got a ton of run, and either way, he's with the U-20s right now, so it doesn't matter. He's with the U.S. U-20s. So he's not going to be involved. But I would be surprised if the Union don't make either some sort of tactical adjustment to try to get more ball movement and production and just a little more stability and patience and possession. I'd be surprised if we don't see a small tactical tweak either in shape or in style or if we don't see someone come in now that the the secondary transfer window is close to opening and we're seeing MLS teams make deals. It feels like something is going to change and it kind of feels like something has to change for the union if they want to win a trophy, especially the supporter shield, which they are in contention for right now. If the union were going to go with an MLS product to bring in to help them be a little bit more creative in the attack, uh, would you advise them to maybe throw some money Alejandro Pozuelo's direction or specifically TFC's direction in hopes of getting him out of his deal about six months early? I'm not sure that Bob Bradley and, and Toronto would be all that upset about that, Taylor. I don't think Pozuelo fits in in Philly. You need someone who's a little bit more mobile and isn't going to just sort of stand around and let plays happen around him defensively. Pozuelo will run, but he's not not that middle ground that the union need in terms of creator and energizer. But Toronto, man, to, to speak about them for a minute and zoom out even a little bit beyond Pozuelo, they're awful in the East right now. They are, I know they're not last, they're 12th in the Eastern Conference, so they're, they're two spots from the bottom. But you look at the underlying numbers and you watch them play, and they are the worst team in MLS, Taylor. And it's a, it's a shame because there's so much potential with this team and some of the young players they have. They're bringing in Insigne, which still should be fun. It's going to be a lot less fun now that they're just really bad. But the start of the Bob Bradley era in Toronto has not been good. They're far too open. The roster construction's not good. They're very injured defensive. They're very injured in general. Uh, and, and because of how the roster was built and, and partially torn apart before this season, it's an incomplete team with giant gaps in, in the distance between the veterans and the young players. Michael Bradley's still patrolling the midfield, and I think his role is far too big. But Toronto just don't have a ton of other 
experienced or quality options in midfield. Insignia will help, and he'll help this team. And I think it'll be fun to watch him, Pozuelo, and Jimenez, and Ayo Akinola, and Jonathan Osorio, and even some of the youngsters, too. It'll be fun to watch this team. They're not bad to watch, but they're they're kind of fun to watch because of how bad they are, not because they're actually good. Two quick questions for you about Toronto, the first of which you've kind of already answered. Uh, do you feel like this was always meant to be a rebuilding year under Bob Bradley, or is that just sort of what it has evolved into? I think there was always the the potential for it to be a rebuilding year, and I think Toronto front office folks would have been foolish to not see that possibility. I don't think it was supposed to be this much of a rebuilding year. I think the idea, you're bringing in Insigne, you have a responsibility to be at least half decent in the Eastern Conference to get Insigne and have him push you over the top. There's not really any chance of that. Insigne could get Toronto to the playoffs. It wouldn't surprise me at all, just given how many darn teams make the playoffs in MLS. Seven in each conference, it's it's too many in my opinion. Just because of how many teams make the playoffs, it wouldn't surprise me if Toronto do make it in. But I think this team has taken a far bigger hit, and Bob Bradley's had a much smaller impact than a lot of people in that area would have liked. And the second question for you, why do you think there has been a reticence to re-sign Pozuelo? He has talked about wanting to stay, really enjoying playing for Toronto, uh, that it's it's not even about the money for him at this point. Uh, but still, it seems like the team is willing to let that contract expire. I think their current phrasing is that they're willing to let things play out and see how things land or whatever it may be. Bob Bradley refusing to answer questions about it. Uh, do you have thoughts on what's going on with Pozuelo and TFC? So there's a lot of unknowns here and a lot that I don't know. I, I can only speak to how Toronto plays and how previous Bob Bradley teams have played, certainly LAFC and Major League Soccer. And if they're trying to follow that 4-3-3 blueprint that Bob used in LA, I don't know that Pozuelo is a great fit for that. He doesn't run. He's not super energetic in that way. And and so there's not a, a really a spot for the number 10 that, that Pozuelo is in a 4-3-3 with a 6 and two eights ahead of that number 6. And he's not a great fit for the wing because he's not quite direct enough or, or really mobile enough to make some of those runs in behind. So that could be part of the reason where Bob Bradley just wants flexibility to build this team and to shape it into the team that he wants them to be. Pozuelo is one of the handful of holdovers from a previous iteration of Toronto FC. And it might just be that Bob Bradley in, in the front office doesn't feel that Pozuelo is really the right fit for what they're trying to build. All right, there we are. Well, we've got two more teams at least I want to talk about in the East. Then we will look to the West. First, Joe, one more break to hear from some sponsors. This episode is brought to you by Michelob Ultra, the official beer sponsor of the NBA. Want to get closer to the game than ever before? Michelob Ultra Courtside is giving fans the chance to win exclusive NBA prizes and experiences like official gear, courtside seats to an NBA game, and more. Head over to MichelobUltra.com slash courtside to learn more. And now, two pigeons bemoaning the fact you can stream DirecTV satellite-free. You see this? A family watching baseball on DirecTV with no satellite dish in sight. Let's heckle them. You call that changing the channel? Choke up on the remote, buddy. I hope getting all these games on DirecTV makes up for your mother not pre-chewing your sunflower seeds. DirecTV has the most MLB games. Visit DirecTV.com. Claim based on total games offered on national and regional sports networks with choice package or higher. Availability of RSNs varies by zip code and package. High-speed internet service required. Terms and restrictions apply. We are back. All right. Still in the Eastern Conference, Joe, we've talked a fair number of teams, but we've got a few more I have questions about, starting with the New England Revolution. They sold Matt Turner. They sold Adam Buxa. They're sixth in the East right now, but not quite on pace to win another supporter shield. What has happened in New England and how do they improve? 
So you hit on a big piece of that. They're, they're going to be losing, slash have already lost two of their biggest and most important players, which is kind of becoming a theme for the revolution in that they're selling players on. Tejan Buchanan left and is now over in Belgium. Matt Turner's gone to Arsenal, and, and Adam Buchs is over in France. They're selling key pieces, which I think is an important part of this team's evolution and, and really them catching up to a lot of other teams in MLS in that way. That's a, a part of it. So they, they've they've done the first half of selling players on. They haven't quite nailed the replacement parts yet. It seems like they have some some really talented players involved that they've gone out and, and purchased. So there's some signs of encouragement there. But losing some of that core is obviously a big hurt for this team. So that's part of it. The other part is New England last year just weren't as good as their record indicated. They, they just weren't. They won and broke the points record last year, which is an incredible accomplishment. But a lot of that was on Matt Turner bailing them out time after time and saving far more goals than he should have, basically. It's just saving shot after shot. And the other part of it was overperforming in the attack that just maybe wasn't sustainable. And we saw that come crashing down. We saw New England come, come back to reality at the start of this season. Bruce Arena since changed the team shape a little bit to give Matt Polster some help in defensive midfield and just to be a little more cautious in certain ways. And I think that's helped this group. Now getting some of those signings that have replaced Tejan Buchanan and have replaced Matt Turner, getting them involved and integrated, I think is the next step for this team. I'd be surprised, Taylor, if the Revs don't make the playoffs. I, I would be even more surprised if they made a ton of noise in the playoffs, but they, they feel to me like a top six-ish top seven team in the Eastern Conference, which is exactly where they are right now. What about Charlotte? Where would you put them on that ranking? They fired uh, Miguel Angel Ramirez, David Tepper's real estate company filed for Chapter 11, which means they are shuttering their half-built practice facility. But two wins and a draw in their last five games. They're seventh in the East. I remain confused by them. Joe, can you make them make sense? Um, yeah, I think so. So first of all, Charlotte have been just a train wreck off the field this season. And even before the season started, a front office member after front office member, Justin Egan wrote a piece in the very first week that Backfield was live about Charlotte and some of their turnover and, and in addition to how they played on the field. So it was a really good comprehensive piece. And just it, it stood out to me how many people have come and gone in that front office, even to other teams in MLS. It's wild how much turnover there's been. You mentioned the the filing for bankruptcy, and now Miguel Angel Ramirez is gone, and it's an interim head coach in his place. It's It's been a wild ride for Charlotte so far, but in spite of all of those things, Taylor, they're getting results. They're seventh in the Eastern Conference right now. They're in the playoffs if the season ended today. That's not an incredible accomplishment for most teams in MLS, but for Charlotte, a team that I had very, very low expectations for coming into this season— that would be a success based off of the hole that they've really put themselves in. So maybe it's not a success. But either way, I've, I've been surprised with how well Charlotte has done this season. I do want to add a little caveat here. They have not won many games against good teams this season. So they haven't even gotten results against many good teams this season. They have a win over the New York Red Bulls. That happened just a couple weeks ago. That was, that was on June 11th. And a draw versus the Colorado Rapids on April 23rd. Those are their only two results, Taylor, against teams that are currently above the playoff line. That's not... Great, right? They also beat Cincinnati, they beat New England and Atlanta in varying levels of convincing fashion. But still, those are good wins as well, so don't get me wrong on that. But they haven't done a lot of of winning, and they haven't played well against a lot of teams that are good and a lot of teams that are above the playoff line. So that is a major caveat here. I don't know if they'll stay above the playoff line. I don't really expect them to, given some of the question marks in the squad, the talent level, and all that stuff. But I enjoy their style. I enjoy how they spread the field. And so far, through almost half of this regular season, they have exceeded my expectations and pretty much everybody else's too. Final question about the East. I thought 
long and hard about how to ask this or about how to phrase this. This is what I've landed upon. Of the teams that are not in the playoff spots right now, so in the East, Cincinnati, Atlanta, Miami, Columbus, Toronto, D.C., and Chicago, which team do you most expect to be like further up the standings comfortably in the playoffs when when it comes down to it? Because right now... I think we've some teams have played 14, some teams have played 16, but it's still very early days, not a ton of points separating the playoff spots from the non-playoff spots. So, Joe, which team do you think is most likely to jump the standings a bit? I want to say Cincinnati just for the feel-good story, but it's Atlanta for me. With all the talent they have, they've dealt with so many injuries this year. Brad Guzan, gone. Miles Robinson, gone. Ozzy Alonso, gone. Joseph Martinez has missed a stretch of the season. They've had to chop and change their roster on the fly, basically. So they just signed Raul Godinho, a 26-year-old goalkeeper uh, from Chivas. Like, he, he wasn't with Chivas at the time, but he has played for Chivas in the past. They also signed a center back from Tigres on loan. And they're basically just having to fill in some spots as they go. But it seems like they're doing that. And so far, the response and the return has been pretty good, despite the fact that they're not in the playoffs. After a mediocre start to the year and dealing with all those injuries, it seems to me, Taylor, that the attack is now gelling. And that is the most important part about this team. Joseph Martinez is back in the lineup, and he's getting some reps. Thiago Almada will be back in, in the squad, and he's incredibly talented. Luis Araujo is is brilliant on that right side. Quick, direct, technical, scored a great goal this past weekend. They have more talent, despite all the injuries, than, than most teams in the league. Not, not more than every team in the league, but they have a lot of talent. And I think that talent is good enough to get them above the line. And come playoff time, with all the quality they have, they are not a team that anybody's going to want to play in a one-off game. All right, so that's Atlanta expected to do things in the East. Out West, we've got LAFC currently leading the Supporter Shield race. Obviously, but that puts them top of the Western Conference. I was uncertain how Steve Trendolo would do uh, taking over LA. It seems so far so good. Yeah, I, I was similarly uncertain, but he hasn't changed a ton. And I think that's been a really good move, probably the best move that he could have made. It's still a 4-3-3 for the vast majority of the time. The personnel is different, and LAFC went and shopped a ton in Major League Soccer to bring in players from around the league, and it's worked. They're top of the West. They're top of their supporter shield race right now. They're a good team. They're not always going to wow you in the same way that Bob Bradley's team did with Vela and Rossi at their peak and, and a number nine producing in the middle. They're not that same team anymore. They're they're a little more pragmatic, I think, and, and a little less fun in certain ways, but they're still really, really good. Add that to, I guess similar with NYCFC, they're a very good team with some questions around them right now, and that makes them even more intriguing in my mind. So what happens with Carlos Vela is a big question about this team right now. His yeah. contract expires very, very soon within the next month. And he's got two games not, left. He's got yeah, two I mean, games there's not left. a lot of clarity about what happens with Vela. He's talking about yeah. how it's business and LAFC maybe are starting to think that maybe they shouldn't bring him back given that he doesn't play a ton and hasn't been that good recently when he does play. Doesn't feel like Vela's going to be back. So what happens with his contract and his situation? Is he even a part of this team for the second half of the year? And and do they bring in another DP? It sounds like, from what John Thorrington's saying, that they will bring in another designated player. Will that player be their third DP or their second if Vela's not involved? And what does that open up for them? So there's there's questions there that I think make this team interesting. Chiellini as well brought in Mamadou Fall in the middle of that back line, I think could make a, a really, really good center back at some point in the near future abroad as well, not just in MLS. He's brilliant and, and really fun to watch. So LAFC questions surrounding them, but a good team. And I think Trundle has done well to not overhaul the tactics and, and kind of galaxy brain anything. 
Uh, you mentioned Chiellini there. Uh, I believe I'm correct in saying not brought in as a DP. Correct. Uh, but yeah. as like a TAM level player. Uh, Ryan Bailey probably furious that Chiellini is in the league and playing. Uh, Joe, what do you think of that signing? Do you think Chiellini fits in with the way LAFC wants to play? I think of him as a very, very good defender. I certainly don't think of him as being fleet of foot. Yeah, he's he's not what he once was in terms of speed and general athleticism. But Taylor, I like this signing. It's a it's a relatively low-risk deal. I, I know you run the risk in terms of the public opinion of people saying MLS is a retirement league. And, and when you get Hector Herrera and Insigne and Shakiri and Chiellini all coming to MLS within the span of a few months, you are going to get people saying this is just a league that players go to when they're tired of being in Europe. And that's that's fine. Those people can say whatever they want. But in terms of the risk factor here for LAFC, really, in terms of the roster and how they're structured... It's a pretty low-risk deal. If you bring him in as a DP, it's a totally different ballgame. But he will be a TAM player. So it's not like you're tied to him forever. I believe it's an 18-month deal. He's he's not going to have to play every game. LAFC have other quality center backs, so all the pressure is not going to be on Chiellini. But you get the chance to fall to learn from him. You get the chance to have Chiellini in big games and in big moments. He can break lines for you. He can still defend. He can be an organizing presence in the back line. It just feels like a low-risk move that raises LAFC's floor. And for a team that's squarely in the middle of their trophy window right now, that's exactly the kind of move you want to be making. So do you get the sense that LAFC are still figuring themselves out, or do you think they have a good idea of who they are and how they want to build from here? Um, Taylor, that's a really good question. Stylistically, I think they know who they are. There's There's been a lot of continuity from the very first game that they ever played in MLS. I think that was against Seattle. Honestly, I don't remember it anymore, but it doesn't matter. The very first game they played in MLS in their expansion season to now, there's a lot of continuity there. So I think stylistically, they have a good idea of who they are and the kinds of players they want to attract. But it's a totally different LAFC team than the one that that was so, so good back in 2019. Diego Rossi is gone. Uh, Carlos Vela may be gone in the next couple of weeks. The midfield is different. The, the defensive personnel has changed. The goalkeeper's changed. The manager has changed. So much is different. But I, I do think this LAFC team has a pretty good grasp of who they are. And I, I think they're set to be a contender in MLS going forward with how much the ownership group has been willing to spend and how ambitious they are and some of the talent that's already on this squad. I think they have a lot of potential to continue threatening in the West going forward. Joe, I feel like I've set you up nicely for this one, and I look forward to you enraging at least one side of L.A. Uh, could you say the same thing about the Galaxy, as you've just said about LAFC? Do you feel like they are poised to figure some things out and get their identity sorted and make a strong run, run for the rest of the season? Not yet. I'm not I'm not as sold on the Galaxy as I am on LAFC. I, I will say there's progress. I think there's been real progress from the, the two years ago, so one year before Greg Vanny was hired to last year, his first year in charge of the team and, and, and their tactical approach and some of the personnel stuff too. There's been real progress there, and I think there's been real progress from last year to this year. It is slow going in some ways, and I think the Galaxy have, have handicapped themselves with some of their spending and, and some of the players that they've purchased, I should say. Kevin Cabral has not been great on the wing. Samuel Grancier has not been great on the wing. They, they don't have that game-breaking quality out wide, which has presented some challenges for them because Greg Vanny desperately wants to play with two wingers. And I, I think more and more, it is it is becoming obvious that the Galaxy need to try to change something up. They either need a, a new signing, which is difficult because they also brought in Douglas Costa this offseason, who was great the first couple of weeks and really hasn't been since then. They have a bunch of DP spots already locked up, so there's not a, fle- a lot of flexibility there. But they have Dejan Jovalich on the bench, who's coming off the bench and scoring bangers over and over again, or at least scoring goals over and over again. He rescued a point for the Galaxy at home in, in Carson on Saturday. I was there, and he changed the game for them. I know he came in in the first half, but really that moment in the second half, late in the game, 
was big, Araujo to Jovalic, and that that was it for the Galaxy in that game. So I don't think they know exactly who they want to be at this point. I think Greg Vanny is still fighting with himself a little bit to try to, to keep that those, those winners on the field and to get production from them, and maybe it works, I don't know. But given how much the Galaxy spend, they're, they're in the top five, I think the top two in MLS in spending right now. You want to see more out of this group. The progress is there, but it's a little slower, I think, than a lot of folks would like. All right. Uh, another team having a pretty strong start to the season out West would be RSL, Real Salt Lake, second in the West, 20 goals for it, 19 against tells me they keep things tight on both sides of the ball. I yep. also saw they have three different players with three goals. So a tri-joint top scorer <laughs> list of Bobby Wood and Sergio Cordova, both forwards. That makes sense. And then Justin Glad, a center back that tells me that they are valuing set pieces. But RSL, not a team that I regularly watch with Sam, particularly familiar with Joe. For you, what are the reasons people should be watching them? What are, what are some things that tend to be interesting or exciting when you're watching RSL? New signings. I'm intrigued by what RSL is going to look like really after the next month or so or over the course of the next couple of months. So Diego Luna is one of those signings. I mentioned his name earlier. He's with the USU-20s right now and, and had a really good game against Canada yesterday as we're recording on Tuesday. He's with the USU-20s, but RSL just paid an MLS record fee for a player coming in from USL just a couple of weeks ago. So he is a player they clearly value. You also look at Jefferson Savarino, who's coming in from uh, well, he's a, he's a Venezuelan national team player who's been involved with RSL before. He's back as a DP. Then you toss in one other signing and some other moves they've made. The ownership group is starting to spend, and they're starting to open up the, the pocketbooks a little bit. And I think that's a, a really promising sign for this RSL team who've had a far better start than I ever expected them to. You, you said it, they're second in the West right now. I don't think they'll stay second in the West for really much longer but the longer they stay up towards the top of the West, the more likely they are to stay in, in the top half of the West for the playoffs. And with some of the quality they brought in, they can do some damage there. So there are absolutely reasons to watch RSL right now. They are changing. They don't still know quite who they are, but they, they are gritty. They're aggressive. They're intense. And that's exactly what you would expect from a Pablo Mastroni team. <laughs> Very well said. I would agree with that. Uh, I like that we've kind of landed on a, a quick hits version when we're rolling through the West, uh, West Coast and the Western Conference. Let's keep that going. Joe, a couple of very abbreviated questions for you. Uh, Nashville still Nashville? Nashville still Nashville for the most part. They haven't been quite as defensively solid in recent weeks, but but generally the idea is, is still there. They're still going to be more defensive in how they approach games. They're still working out what exactly the, the attack looks like. They're still not a team that anybody's going to want to play come playoff time in the West. Uh, Portland, why bad? Uh, Portland, kind of old. Also, Portland, generally kind of mediocre in the regular season under Gio Savarese. I think that's the best way I can can say that. They'll catch <laughs> fire in the playoffs because of how they play. They, they defend, and they'll, they'll just punish you in individual moments when you make mistakes. And that kind of soccer tends to do pretty well in the postseason where you can catch fire and make a run. We just saw it last year all the way to MLS Cup, though they didn't lift that trophy over NYCFC. The Sebastian Blanco's getting older. They've dealt with a bunch of injuries. It's not a squad that's going to wow you, uh, but I, I think Portland is probably primed to make a little more noise so far in the West than they have been. I don't know, though, Taylor, if they're going to make the playoffs or not. That is fair. Another team that we don't know if they will make the playoffs or not, but I, I am currently inclined to say they will not, would be Houston. Uh, I'm moving us to Texas for a second. Joe, uh, how big is the Hector Herrera uh, signing going to be for Houston? What do they need to get them out of their current form? I think four losses in their last five games. 
it's a big signing for Houston. He's a good player. He hasn't been playing a ton over in Spain over the last couple of seasons, but Herrera, we know his quality. He's good on the ball. If he still has some of that defensive mobility left in him, I think he can be an, in fact, impactful player for them. Nagamura has some has some difficult choices to make in terms of his personnel and his lineup. Coco Carasquilla, a Panamanian international who is just brilliant, really, really good, was signed on a permanent deal, so they, they made his loan deal a, a permanent transfer. And he kind of does a lot of the ball progression, attacking stuff as a number eight that Hector Herrera does for Mexico and has done a little bit for Atletico Madrid and Porto in the past. So I'm wondering, does Nagamura change the shape? It's been a 4-2-3-1 for Houston. Does he change it to a 4-3-3 with a number six and then Herrera and, and Carasquilla as the two number eights? Then where does Darwin Quintero go? I don't I don't know exactly what Houston's going to look like once Herrera gets involved and starts playing towards the beginning of July, but he brings more talent to a team that desperately needs more talent, just like a number of other teams in MLS, and that can only be a good thing for Houston. One other quick thing, Taylor, sorry, before people tweet angrily at me, earlier when I talked about Charlotte, I said Colorado was above the playoff line and that draw on April 23rd was, was a good result. It still was a good result. Colorado's not above the playoff line. I... I goofed. It's okay. Just don't tweet it's a, angry things. Again, I mean, they're one point from a playoff spot. So they're it's good. not Colorado's as though you good. got it. Yeah, terribly wrong. Ish. Uh, it, goodish. But while we're <laughs> goodish. While we're asking clarifying questions, Joe, I should follow up. Um, Joe, still in love with the Coco? Uh, still in love with the Coco, the Coco Tale. Okay, <laughs> Going cool. back to our te- when when did we have that text exchange? I don't even remember what it was. But <laughs> it's yes, been a while. I, it has been a while. I do love Coco Carasquilla. He is he's so much fun to watch, and I think him and Herrera in midfield, along with Darwin Quintero, maybe that's the four two three one with those players at the base and Quintero at the tip. I, I think that could be so much fun to watch. This is definitely going to be the Texas segment of the show. Austin FC, currently the best team from Texas in Major League Soccer. Are you surprised by that or has have the kind of signs been there that they are steadily improving to this point? I'm surprised with how high they are in the West right now. I'm not surprised that they've improved. I think year two under Josh Wolf was always going to be a better year for this team. And you have players like Sebastian Gerisi pulling strings and creating chances. And you have just some real quality in this team. They're not the finished product. I'm still not quite sold on the winger core. Uh, Diego Fagundes is a good player and he's produced this season, but he's not a guy who's going to beat you 1v1 all the time. They're, they're a little unbalanced in that way, but they play pretty good and entertaining soccer. They create chances more than a lot of other teams in the league, and they can use the ball to both attack and defend in that, that sort of classic Pep style. They're not Barcelona in that way, but they will use the ball and they will use possession. And I, I really enjoy watching Austin, especially their home games with the environment yeah. and the atmosphere there. They're a fun team to watch if you're looking to turn on a random MLS game, an Austin home game. You could do a lot worse than that. I was going to ask you about that, and not just because Matthew McConaughey tends to be doing weird things on social <laughs> media and in the videos I've seen. Like Austin does seem to be a, a really great atmosphere, really consistently. Where would you put them on on the stadiums that you would most like to see a game? Because I know you're starting to cross some of those off. Do you have Austin sure. on that short list? It is high up the list, Taylor. A lot of the new soccer-specific stadiums that have been built, I think are ones that I would really love to go see. So Austin being one of them, and then the the two in Ohio, Cincinnati and, and Columbus, I think have some really impressive stadiums. Maybe not quite the same atmosphere that Austin has, but I would really enjoy going down to Texas to catch one of those games, catch a Dallas game and a Houston game along the way. This sounds like a good TSS road trip idea, just saying. What? I mean, yeah, and as, long, and as long as we're road tripping, I think it's, <laughs> it's about three hours from Austin to Dallas, and I think it's an equal amount of time from Dallas to where FC Dallas plays in Frisco. Uh, uh, good. Gotta take that was some good. Shots. Gotta take some shots. That was good. Um, let's talk FC Dallas 
for a second. Um, Joe, I know you've got a soft spot in your heart for FC Dallas because of the way they operate, the way they run. They're one place behind Austin right now, but I'm assuming you're enjoying what you've seen from them thus far this season. I am. Dallas, for me, Taylor, is one of the best stories in MLS right now. Hands down, really. So think about where they were last season. They finished 11th in the West last year under Luigi Gonzalez, and and he doesn't come back. Dallas don't have him back as manager. And now he and Nico Estevez just swap places. So they just changed jobs. Luigi Gonzalez is now on Greg Berhalter's staff with the national team, and Estevez moves from that role into the head coaching role in Dallas. And now they're up to fourth in the West, which is which is good. It's a really Im- improvement from, from last year, from 11th to fourth. They're also only eight points behind their entire points total from last year, which kind of blew my mind. So they're going to equal that points total by the end of July, certainly maybe even sooner, maybe the middle of July or, or, or sooner than that. They're a fun team to watch, and they know exactly who they are, which for the longest time, Taylor, has been an academy-driven club, and that is still the case. They are churning out prospects. There's talent there. Paxton Pomichol starts every game in central midfield. Jesus Ferreira came to the academy, and he's starting up top. And there's other talent in that group that we're seeing on display at various youth tournaments and in in uh, academy play. There's talent there, but now the Hunts are spending money too. They, they spent money on the academy. They built out the infrastructure, even if that infrastructure is eight years away from Dallas. They, they built up the club as a whole And now it seems like the last piece of the puzzle that's been missing for so long has been spending to bring players in who are ready to contribute to the first team right now. They kind of did that with Frank O'Hara a year or two ago now. I can't remember. He hasn't hit exactly, but he's still playing some minutes for this team. But they really did it with Alan Velasco, who you talked about in the preseason previews, as a player we needed to measure our expectations for. And that is absolutely true and has rung true in this season. But Velasco and Areola, who they acquired for an MLS record transfer within the league, a trade within the league, are flanking Jesus Ferreira. So you have an academy player, you have a player that you spent big money on inside of MLS, and you have a player you spent a club record transfer fee on on the other wing. That, for me, says so much about this Dallas team. They're getting results now. They're having academy players come up and really feature in this team. I think Dallas and their improvement and their just evolution as a club that now is competing and doing things in pretty much every facet that you could ask of a soccer team, that, for me, is a really great story. If you had to pick, Joe, which team from Texas are you most comfortable saying is most likely to win MLS Cup the soonest? I hope that question made sense to you. Which Texas team do you think is basically going to win the MLS Cup oh, that's the soonest? Good. That is so good. Um, I, I think... Dallas, but I, I, Austin pretty close up there too. Houston, new ownership, Ted Siegel, there's potential for them. They, they are showing some willingness to spend as well. This could go any way, but Dallas, with how much they've improved from last year to this year, and, and just the foundation they have relative to those other Texas team teams, I think they're my pick here, Taylor. Uh, Joe, final question that I have prepared, and then I will leave it to you to talk about any of the teams <laughs> you'd like to talk about. Uh, but you mentioned Jesus Ferreira having a strong season. You mentioned Brendan Vasquez. We haven't talked about Jeremy uh, Ibobasi with San Jose. Uh, but you have uh, you've noted previously that it's been a great year for the American striker in Major League Soccer. Uh, as lazy of a way of phrasing this as it is, can you talk a little bit more about that, number one, but then also... Is there any specific reason why maybe that isn't translating as much to the U.S. men's national team at this point? So the national team part, Taylor, I think has just the most to do with Jesus Ferreira has been in a little bit of a scoring slump, or at least he was before Granada. If you look at the spots he's moving into and how he's he's moving into goal scoring positions, 
I think you have to be encouraged by that. So I think it's just the small sample size plays a big part into the national team conversation. I'm not too concerned. I think Ferreira will score some goals for the U.S. in September. I think he'll score some goals for the U.S. of the World Cup too, or at least if the U.S. is creating those chances, I think he is capable of being the guy to finish them off. In terms of the general American goal scoring trend in MLS, it's been a long time since there have been so many USMNT eligible goal scorers actually scoring goals in MLS. The last time really that there were so many players in the top 10 was 2014. So that Dom Dwyer, who wasn't technically a U.S. citizen at the time, was scoring goals that year. Jossie Zardes, or at least he wasn't U.S. eligible at the time. Jossie Zardes was scoring goals that year. Clint Dempsey and Chris Wondolowski were scoring goals that year. This year, it's Ferreira, it's Vasquez, it's Ibobasi, it's Georgi Mihailovic, who's dealing with a little bit of an injury right now. Americans are scoring goals, and it's it's fun to watch. We don't see this stuff a lot. MLS, for whatever reason, hasn't produced a ton of really good goal scorers, hasn't been producing a ton of really good goal scorers. And I don't think that Ferreira and Vasquez and Ibobasi are on you know the, the top level of, of global soccer scorers or anything like that. But just relative to a lot of the other players like Cucho Hernandez and other expensive signings that are coming into this league, and MLS teams are paying for those players, unlike how they're really not paying for MLS uh, American scorers, I think it's an interesting trend or maybe the beginning of a trend to see some of these players set up shop in MLS for a little while. Ferreira is on a DP deal now, and it seems like he could be in MLS for a little bit. Brendan Vasquez has been in MLS for a while, and it seems like he's found a nice home in Cincinnati. Ibobasi as well, same sort of situation in San Jose. So it feels like this could be the beginning of something. Either way, Taylor, it's something that we haven't seen in a really long time. Uh, I should note for listeners uh, that I think I sent Joe maybe six talking points or things that I was going to ask him about. I believe we've now talked about 18 different teams in the league <laughs> uh, in varying in varying detail with a lot of information about certain players and coaches and styles of play. Joe, I, you you have too much in your brain. I don't quite know how you hold all of this in. Is that why you don't see movies so you can keep all your soccer knowledge intact? <laughs> Something's got to go, Taylor. I guess. I guess it's been movies. I. Oof. I don't know. I. I forget a lot of other things, like other major things on my to do list and like That's other fair. stuff. That's so fine. maybe maybe I should trim the MLS knowledge and consumption back ever so slightly, so that I can remember like things on my grocery list. Maybe that'll help, Taylor. I don't know. Is it easy for you to remember how many outlets you currently write for? Because I think at any given time it's between two and twelve. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Usually a little closer to two, hopefully than twelve. Um, <laughs> but no, it is. It is difficult running through them in my head. It is difficult, but I think I think we can compound a full list here. Speaking of, I guess to, to pitch quickly, I just had uh, a Mamadou Fall article go up for the Athletic. I think today, as or maybe as we were recording right now. So go read that. Enjoy Mamadou Fall and enjoy LAFC, and maybe even enjoy watching some MLS as the summer goes on and as the the fall as we get closer to the fall. It's transfer season, so there's going to be some moves both incoming and outgoing, which I think is always exciting. We love that stuff. People love that stuff. That's just how we're wired as human beings. I think to enjoy mm-hmm. transfers, but that's coming up. We're close to transfer season. We'll have coverage of that and of the U.S. Women's National Team and the Men's National Team and, and Americans Abroad and, and NWSL and USL. If you like American soccer, we'll have plenty of coverage of all that stuff over at Backheel.com. And, and Taylor, I know we'll be doing plenty of that stuff here too. Joe, uh, question apropos of nothing. Do you feel like LAFC's Mamadou Fall, who's 19 years old, could mature into one of MLS's <laughs> best defenders? Just out of curiosity. Uh, yeah, I think that sounds about right. I honestly didn't know what Alex titled that article. So that feels about right. But Mamadou Fall is awesome. And I think I think he has the potential to be another one of those players in the Castellanos, Adams, uh, Davies, and Almiron tier of exports. He is so good. And I don't think MLS has had a young central defender with his ceiling ever, maybe, maybe ever, at least in the last decade or last five, six, seven years. 
at least not that I can think of. All right. Well, listeners, you will hear more from Joe and myself this week. We're, we're going to be uh, joined by Ryan and Graham to do a look ahead to the World Cup, talk about some teams that have qualified since last we discussed, and just some updates on some teams, some expectations for that tournament. We're going to be doing listener questions. There's allocation disorder to round out the week, as well as another Soccer 101 episode. But for now, Joe, you've, you've talked a lot. I, I feel like I've, I've, uh, I've asked a lot of you, so go rest your brain, go ice your brain. I think that's how it works, and I look forward to talking to you tomorrow. Taylor, right back at you. This was a blast. (laughs) Listeners, thanks so much for sticking with us, for listening all the way through, I'm sure. And if you did, pat yourself on the back right now. While you do that, I will say thank you so much for listening. We'll talk to you again soon. As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10, place your first bet on any game, and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager.